before we get into the subject of today's video, let's start with a prayer. If you'd pray with me. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down on carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, while thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and our bodies, O Christ our God. Indeed, we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and that all-holy good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, unto the ages of ages. Amen. So, in starting off with this prayer, not only does this help me, because pray for divine illumination as I talk to you about these things, but when you pray with me, uh, it helps both of us, because we're asking that God would allow those true things I say to have an effect, and those things which maybe aren't stated well or aren't true to be kind of set aside or canceled out. So um, I, I really do believe that it's extremely important that we pray these specific things because I've seen God act in amazing ways when we ask. Um, so before we go on to the main subject of the video, I just want to briefly say that if you have not already done so, and I so appreciate everybody who has done so, um, if you've not already done so and you're in a financially good position, you're a regular viewer or a new viewer who's just enthusiastic, um, I really do appreciate all of those who make a contribution through Patreon, but also those who make a one-time contribution you can comment and we can set up something through uh, Venmo. We could like talk on the phone for if you wanted to give, you know, something. I don't know. Um, I, I'm, I'm flexible, but I really do appreciate it uh, because that is actually what has enabled me to keep going and make these videos. In other words, it's what's enabled me to have the time that it takes to produce these videos, also to manage them and to engage people um, to the degree that I think um, these subjects really require. Um, so uh, that's all I'll say on that. You've heard me before. And let's get to the main subject of today's discussion. And that is taming the tongue. Okay, so it should go without saying, but I'm afraid it doesn't go without saying that everything I say here, I am not saying as a veiled criticism of anybody else on YouTube. And I mean this very seriously. If, if I was the only person to ever make a YouTube video, the stuff that I would be saying here would be exactly the way that it is. Because my primary interlocutor here is with my past self. Because I have seen the truths of scripture about the deadly nature of the tongue play out a million times over. Uh, I... I We've, we've talked about this in my previous videos in this series, but um, I was cruel and nasty to people. And it wasn't because they had dishonored Christ and it wasn't because of, you know, whatever my excuse of the day was. It was because I wanted to blow off steam. And um, this is part of my penance for that. Um, but I hope uh, that one of the ways in which God turns that for good is that I'm able to say something which might edify you in uh, these videos. So let's talk about the way that Solomon discusses the tongue in Proverbs. First of all, why put it in the book of Proverbs? Proverbs is a book which is about wisdom. And as we've discussed many times before, 
particularly in my video on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what wisdom is, is it is that aspect of oneself and one's intellect by which one comes to know the world as it truly is, and consequently, one is able to shape it in the way one desires to. So take somebody who wants to make a computer chip. In order to make that computer chip, one has to understand these intrinsic qualities which inhere in the stuff of the world by God's active self-imprinting, not only at the moment of creation, but at every moment that continues. One has to understand the way that silicon relates to other properties and other substances uh, one has to understand what we would call the laws of physics, what are perhaps more neutrally called the patterns of nature, which I think are really an abstraction of the individually natured behavior of particular particles. That's something I actually want to talk about another day. Um, point is, in order to manipulate the world, in order to shape the world, you have to know the world, and we know the world through wisdom. Now, because God created the world out of his own infinite plenitude. We might say that just as a painter puts himself in his painting, but not in the same way that he puts himself in his clothing, so also God's act of creation is God's putting of himself in the painting of the world, but in the incarnation, God clothes himself in the stuff of the world so that that which is creatively imprinted from him uh, is actually joined to that principle from which it was imprinted in the beginning. All of this is just a fancy way of getting to the point of saying that when one gets down to brass tacks and when you get down to the fundamental wiring of why wisdom works, Wisdom works because that which enables the creation to continue to exist as it does from moment to moment is the very one who gives us commandments and instructions. And these commandments and instructions are meant to develop the human family and through the human family, the whole cosmos to ascend into the life of the uncreated God. In other words, the, what we call ethics or morality are at bottom derived from certain, as C.S. Lewis puts it, unalterable facts about God's own nature. So God exists as Trinity. That's not a contingent fact. There's, it's not as if God could have existed as a single person or as a quaternity of persons. No, God's Trinitarian life is intrinsic and internal to what it means for him to be God. As a consequence, this self-giving pattern is intrinsic and internal to what it means for anything to exist at all, which is why we find that the more that we give of ourselves, the more of ourselves we really have to give. And that is why when one hates one parents, one's parents, in contrast to the amount of love with which one has for Christ, one finds that God pours his love out into the heart so that one might actually love one's parents far more than one ever did before. Now, for those who are not familiar, I was quoting a saying of the gospel where Jesus says, if you do not hate father and mother by comparison to your love for me, paraphrase, you cannot be my disciple. So if that just sounded like a weird phrase, if you're not especially familiar with the New Testament, that's what I'm talking about there. Um, so wisdom is a practical handbook for ruling the world. And what do you know? 
The beginning of ruling the world is ruling oneself. You find this language especially about the tongue in the epistle of James. It's about dominion over oneself. We'll talk about that a little more in the next slide. So that's the kind of uh, ontological, one of my favorite words, means it, it lies in the nature of things. It's not something you just kind of bolt onto it or it's not uh, an arbitrary statement, but it belongs to the internal nature of a thing, that which makes it what it is. Morality, quote unquote, belongs to the ontos, the being of creation, and the being, the ontos of creation, belongs to the being or ontos of God. You see my recent videos on apophatic theology for how this applies in relation to the doctrine of the divine energies. We say God in his essence is beyond being, in his energies he is being, and he is the archetype of creaturely being. If you want more details on that, just go watch those videos. Um, so let's talk about some of these specific texts and let's talk about some things which are rather curious about them. So I'm going to begin by just reading these aloud because scripture is meant to be read aloud because when it is read aloud it exits my mouth and it goes into your ears and you will notice different things when you hear it than when you just read it on the page. So Proverbs 15 verses 1 to 7. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. Next, Proverbs chapter 10, verses 18 to 20. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little worth. And finally, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So you might be asking yourself, why did I stick this bit from Ephesians at the end of a slide which is supposed to be discussing the nature of wisdom as it relates to the tongue. And the reason I did that is because I think it captures a really important aspect of the biblical doctrine of fatherhood and the biblical doctrine of parentage. We notice in the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy that the fruitfulness of man is the result of God's dwelling in Israel so as to endow Israel with some of his own life-giving quality. The Father, or God eternally exists as the Father, and the Father as Father is eternally productive of the eternal Son. So God endows something of himself to the world, and the world is fruitful and multiplies as a consequence. So when God does that in the uh, Holy Temple, it says that God plants Israel in his sanctuary. 
And it's because the fruitful, life-giving God is in the temple that Israel becomes fruitful and life-giving. Well, man was created as the Lord of the cosmos, not arbitrarily, but because man is a miniature representation of the creation. So the instruction book, which tells you what everything in creation is, there's a miniature copy in every human being in an individuated way, that is, in a unique way to every person. Everybody has a different complementary perspective on the very same truths about God and about the world. So when God dwells with his people and he endows Israel with something of his own life, his own fruitfulness, well, that flows out from the Holy Temple and there are trees which pop up by the river of life. And so the life of God is given to the people of God and through the people of God, it is given to the entirety of the creation. And this dynamic is represented in the language of parentage and specifically in the language of fatherhood, though in most cases it also applies to motherhood. So consider in the book of Isaiah, when the prophet is speaking of the coming of the Messiah, this is part of that longer section which includes the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Well, the prophecy of the suffering servant is preceded by the statement that God sends forth a word which will not return void, but which will do that for which God purposes it. And what does it do? It goes into the ground like a seed and like rain. The prophet Isaiah is echoing Deuteronomy 11 here. It goes into the ground like seed and fertilized by the rain of the Holy Spirit. It gives birth to uh, this fruitful, wonderful, branching tree. And that's why it calls back to that earlier language in Isaiah. Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom forth uh, and send forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Sometimes when you're walking outside, just look around at the trees and the plants and think of how unbelievably amazing every single one of those is. Think about how it relates to light and water. And think about how important light, water, trees, and man all are in the biblical vision of things. At every moment, the creation is pulsating with divine life and thereby telling of the way that God lives and the way that we live in God. Creation is always fruitful and bursting forth with multiplying branching trees, all kinds of life. Well, what is fatherhood all about? I think the basic core concept in fatherhood at least as it regards our discussion today, is this idea that the qualities of the father's existence are imprinted or endowed to the children who are begotten through this word, okay? So you look at the Catholic epistles, that is epistles of James to Jude. Look at how often it speaks of the living and abiding word that is fruitful. And so James 1 uh, 17 to 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. We are made fruitful through the word. Colossians says this, uh, the, the word uh, is fruitful and multiplying. 
this is the way in which God communicates his own eternal life-giving quality. And that's why in John 1, 1 to 18, it's the only begotten son who is the incarnate word who brings forth a great harvest. And that begins a story which runs straight through the gospel of John and goes throughout the book of Revelation so that on earth, the eternal hypostatic word of God is planted, is born again from the dead, and grows as a great tree which extends all the way from the grave to which he descended up to the highest height of high heaven so that all things are stitched together, are united in his own life. And we share in that by partaking of the life-giving sap of the Spirit who uh, proceeds from the Father and rests in the Son so that he might draw us into that very same sabbatical rest. So this imprinting of the qualities of the Father on the children, I think that's the central concept, at least for today's purposes. Now, think about how the prophetic calling works in the scriptures. The prophetic calling is very intimately associated with lips, with the tongue, with the mouth. Think about what Moses says and God calls him to be a prophet. I'm a man of slow of speech. Jeremiah says the same thing. The word of God touches Jeremiah's lips. Isaiah, a seraph, brings Isaiah a coal from God's altar, flaming, burning with the divine presence, touches Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah anticipates what will happen to all Israel through the atonement of Christ. Because Isaiah is a man of unclean lips, because he dwells among a people of unclean lips. Well, because Isaiah is cleansed by the flaming, uh, uncreated life of the Spirit, that is a sign of hope and redemption for the whole nation. And through that nation, the world. So we see that a prophet, in order to be a prophet, is not just given things to say, but is actually changed from the inside out. Something about that person is changed. And how? It is by the uncreated life of God, by the Spirit, by the Word, which dwells in them. When we're told in the book of Samuel that uh, King Saul was included in the prophetic company, he was later expelled from it, uh, when he's included in the prophetic company such that people ask in a positive way, is Saul also among the prophets? It says God gave him another heart because it is the heart from which the mouth speaks and it is the heart into which the seed, which is the word, the logos of God, enters and gives birth. So that's why in Samuel, the prophet Samuel becomes father to King Saul, then later to King David. There's this father-son theme running throughout the book. That's why King Saul asks of David, who is his father? It's not a sign of a so-called literary theme indicating two originally contradictory and independent sources. No, no, no. It's part of the theme of fatherhood, which is running uh, right from the first chapter all the way to the last chapter. And that theme of fatherhood, of course, has to do with the fruitful ground, which is why the very last chapter of the book is buying a field upon which Solomon will build the holy temple. And remember what God says in Exodus 15, God will plant Israel on his holy mountain. So this is all running and uniting together. So it's in this context that I want to call your attention to something I've highlighted by bolding specific words on the slide here, if you're watching on YouTube. You will notice that when Solomon speaks of folly, the failure of teaching 
The failure of the fool to teach is not in his lips, it's in his heart. The possibility to speak wisdom into the world, which matures, creates, develops the world, makes it more rich, makes it more valuable, that possibility has already been spoiled if one has a heart that is enslaved to the flesh. The Lord Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says, by our words, we will be justified. By our words, we will be condemned. And that's because justification, this uh, declaration of a person as righteous by the word of God, the creative word of God, which actually makes us righteous, justification is being included in that righteousness of God in which all things are harmonized and balanced with all other things. And the only way that these, these harmonious relationships can be restored are through words which build up in charity. So why is it that the fool, in Solomon's understanding, cannot teach? It is because the fool has a heart which is still dominated by an inclination to hatred, which doesn't mean just the most intense burning forms of hatred. It means that heart which looks upon someone who has said something perhaps silly, and the first inclination of the mind is to rejoice because, ha, I'm not silly like this person, or one delights when one sees some someone's life falling apart because, oh, I've got to tell my friend about this. And I'm saying these things from introspection. This is, this is what it means, I think, when Paul says that true divine love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. C.S. Lewis says very astutely that... If one hears a rumor about one's enemies, that they've done something horrible, and then one discovers later on that that rumor is false, and one is bitterly disappointed and does not challenge that, form of that, that, that reaction of disappointment, one has taken one's first small step in a journey which will eventually make you a devil. Because you've seen darkness, and then you realized it wasn't dark, it was actually... It was a false darkness. Light overcame it. But you preferred the darkness to the light. You wished the world was darker than it was. And that is a way of life which will destroy you. And that's why I think gossip is especially um, dangerous. Churches at the local level are destroyed by gossip. The enemy loves gossip because it seems so mundane. It seems so minor. But what one isn't seeing when in an individual moment of gossip is that long, slow journey where one's joy and desire is built up around that which is not good, around that which is not the truth, so that one gets the most pleasure out of evil and so if god 
wipes all the evil out of the world as he will do, what is there left to rejoice in? There's nothing more to gossip about. And I think we can all see this in our, in our own heart. There's some kind of disposition to rejoice in wrongdoing, not only because we think it makes us look better by contrast, but also there's this bizarre, and all evil is at bottom bizarre when you get down to it's like what makes it sinful. It's utterly bizarre. What is it about someone doing something stupidly wrong that makes us so happy to talk about it? It doesn't make any sense. It's not supposed to make sense. Sin has no logos. And this fruitfulness, which belongs to words in their genuine divine character as words, is what I think explains the language of wealth and riches here. It's what explains the language of the, uh, the wise tongue being a tree of life. Because goodness, as goodness, is infinitely powerful. Evil is not powerful. It is pathetically weak. This is why you have to go through the struggle of the trench warfare of putting to death the flesh every single day. And it's why you have to go through the process where the flesh rises up against you and you have to fight it by the spirit and you're gonna you're gonna lose many individual battles you're gonna take lots of blows but if you didn't if you weren't put through that process the strength of the sin would never be separated from the sin itself because let me tell you something when you cut off by the spirit the strength which is attaching itself to the sin but which really belongs to goodness intrinsically when that which once rose up as your enemy bends its knee in obeisance to your will when your knee bends in obeisance to the will of christ that's everything that is what it means to be an a gloriously exalted human being and that's why God has ordained sanctification in the way that he's ordained sanctification. And this idea of power, the basic inner concept is power to shape and change the world. God is infinitely sovereign in relation to the world because he is the world's creator. He's the one who decided the way that everything was going to be, and thus the buck stops with him in deciding the way that every individual thing is going to be in the course of history. That's why his sovereignty is always linked to his being the creator. And that's why we acquire sovereignty over the world when we are joined to that uncreated life of God. Uh, consider what is written in Philippians uh, chapter 3. I've quoted this before, but uh, I think it's a really important uh, verse in understanding the way these concepts relate. Uh, chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, that is the King, who will transform the body of our lowliness to be like the body of his glory by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This glory 
which stitches the church together as a single family. This glory, which is the glory of the resurrection body, is the very glory that enables Jesus as the incarnate word, who is both son of God and son of man. It is that glory by which he rules the world. And this is what speaking the truth in love really does. In a way, when one understands the inner nature of moral goodness, there is no practical distinction between moral goodness and a utilitarian concept of goodness. Now, don't misunderstand what I say here. There is an epistemic difference in that one must obey God in faith, even when one doesn't understand why he has commanded what he's commanded. But in the wiring of the world, in the life of God, it just so happens that God is the wisest being, that God knows how everything works. And so to be obedient to him from the heart is the way that you will truly have all of your, in the life of the world to come, human problem solved. That's the way that the creation really will be most infinitely fruitful. Well, this idea of a tree fruitful through time, or the idea of one's financial assets or one's property considered simply in monetary terms, because if we say someone is a multimillionaire, we don't mean they have several million dollars, so I think we sometimes slip into that manner of speech, but I want to avoid it because I think it's not actually an accurate understanding of what wealth is. What we mean is that their assets, including their, you know, their house, their car, uh, furniture, all of that stuff, when it's considered in terms of the money that it would be converted into if all that stuff was sold, it would be $3 million. It's very likely that someone who has $3 million has less than a million dollars in cash because currency is value in motion. You want to buy a new house, you got to sell your old house, you convert it into its cash value, and then you buy a new house with that cash. So you had the house, you convert it into currency, and then you convert the currency into another house. And so it is currency, current, like the current of a river. Or the current moment means time as it flows from past to future, and current is the present moment. Whether that's the etymological reason, I don't know. I suspect it probably is, but I don't know. I'm not going to uh, tell you that I'm sure about it because I'm not. But if that's a helpful image, uh, maybe... Uh, that'll help you in the future. But I think this also relates to the meaning of wealth in terms of the theology of Proverbs and in terms of Proverbs' theology of time. Because Proverbs is all about wisdom in considering more than your immediate desires. You want joy, right? You want to be happy. You can't not want to be happy. Of course you want to be happy. And rejecting sexual pleasure in the moment might mean rejecting a moment of happiness or what you consider to be happiness. But you reject it 
because at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. And the path to the right hand of God through the Spirit is in rejecting the immediate inclinations of the flesh, by which I mean the inclination of our will as it tends towards death, as it tends against the end for which it was created on account of the fall. So we have a good inclination and we have an evil inclination. And through wisdom, we identify one instead of the other and we embrace the good instead of the evil. Well, every word of God bears much fruit. When God speaks, when he does something, he knows exactly why he is doing it. He never does something from mere instinct. God is no subconscious because he infinitely knows himself. And so whenever he speaks, he knows exactly why he spoke what he spoke. He knows exactly why he spoke in the way that he spoke. And he knows exactly what he desires to get out of it. And guess what? He unfailingly does get out of it that for which he desired. We've talked about the way this relates to free will um, elsewhere, but as an Orthodox person, I, I affirm libertarian freedom. I don't want to get into that now, but if you're just wondering about that, I do have other discussions uh, about that subject. And the same is true with speaking the truth in love. So we want to spread the truth, right? But why is it that Paul specifically says speaking the truth in love? To say speaking the truth in love for that not to be redundant, that means it certainly does not mean speaking the truth is love. In fact, the fact that Paul makes that qualification suggests that there is a temptation to use truth as a bludgeon, to speak the truth in a way that is not charitable. And the fact that the New Testament, as well as Proverbs, lays such a heavy emphasis on gentleness Peter speaks of gentleness and respect in answering people's questions, suggests that while there are circumstances in which very sharp language like Matthew 23 is warranted, all things being equal, it's probably not the case when we're dealing with, you know, an individual who we're just engaging with them. Um, I, I, I know, and again, I'm just speaking on my own behalf here, I, I know that um, in the past, uh, I would often kind of point to these texts in the New Testament where Jesus speaks very sharply. I would say, see, I'm just following Jesus' example, but if I looked at my heart then, and again, speaking on my own behalf, not anyone else's, looked at my heart then, um, that wasn't the, re the real reason why I was doing that. So uh, this is not the same thing as being nice. There's a difference between being gentle and kind and being nice because niceness in the extent of that word and what it signifies and the images it conjures up in our minds. Niceness tends to suggest a kind of speech that takes avoidance of conflict as the supreme good. Now, Paul does say, as far as it is possible, be at peace with everyone. But there are some cases where it's just not possible. But we should try our, our darndest, as far as it is possible, be at peace with everyone. But there is a temptation, some people have that temptation more than others, um, to 
water down maybe something that someone asks you a question about um, your faith, for example. And there's a temptation to water it down because you don't want to have conflict. And then there's the opposite temptation to stir up conflict because one rejoices in conflict. But the essential quality of value is endurance to the future. And in order for something to endure to the future as identifiably itself, its structure has to be preserved in such a way that the later development is rooted in its earlier iteration. So what does it mean to break something apart? It means to deconstruct it, to shatter it into its constituent parts in such a way that those constituent parts are no longer identifiable with reference to the whole. What does it mean to say a family exists through time? Well, that name that belongs to your family house or whatever is identifiable and that helps to sustain a sense of family history. And I say that in order to draw some perhaps practical suggestions in terms of the language that King Solomon uses. Solomon says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Have you ever had, been in a situation where, let's say, you know, theologically, somebody becomes interested in a theological question for the first time? Maybe they, they even come to a position that's closer to your own position. But they become interested in that theological topic for the first time and they use maybe some cliches that remind you of your past self and make you cringe or uh, they're trying to get at the right idea but they get at it in a wrong way or they use an argument that you wouldn't use anymore um, and you react to that with palpable disgust so they're expressing their excitement over important questions for the first time and you just just knock them down and you can see kind of their eyes just drop they thought they were going to have something exciting to share with you to talk to you about and you reacted not with anger but with disgust and it breaks the spirit well that means that the word of truth which was growing in them at least with reference to this particular interaction has been ripped up so that it will have less and less of an influence on them going forward because they have less and less of a reason to continue to identify with that word which had been growing imperfectly no doubt in them if one wants one's articulation of the truth to shape people and that's what it really means love builds up paul says well build we should think concretely here this is architectural language architectural language is so often coextensive with arboreal language that is language about gardens and trees and such we plant and water but god gives the growth it says because in because temples in scripture are built out of uh, lumber and stone both of which come out of the ground so it's a treehouse. The ark is a moving treehouse. 
So it can be seen as a encapsulation of a garden as well as a sanctuary. Well, if one's word is going to shape people, if that word is going to be rooted in the presence of Jesus Christ in your heart so that when it proceeds from your mouth, it has power in it and it will shape people, it will change the actions that they take going forward, it has to be in love because it's only in love that the person is softened enough so that they can hear what is being said. And in this case, I think love is very close to gentleness. So there are certain circumstances where gentleness is not what is called for. But I think in the case of persuading an individual person, that is, you're not just debating someone before an audience, but you're trying to engage with an individual person so that you can persuade them, your goal, in my opinion, should be every five seconds, you want to get them to listen for five more seconds, right? So that's the second most important thing. The first most important thing is that you convince them to just say a prayer that God would reveal himself, but you want them to keep listening. And that's why gentleness softens the soil. It enables a person to really listen. I know I've talked about this in my previous videos on this subject, but um, it was such an influential moment for me Many years ago, when I was uh, when I made a habit of speaking with cruelty and disdain to other people, and you know, I hope by God's grace, <laughs> I, 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 you could no longer describe me with those um, words, at least publicly. You know, the heart is a different thing, but um, I'm, I think I'm gentler than I used to be. Uh, but there was a young man who sent me a message over AOL Instant Messenger when that was still around. He was an atheist and he spoke with all of the kind of typical new atheist cliches. So you believe in a fairy, sky daddy, why don't, it's just like Santa Claus. Uh, but I was bored that day and I decided just out of boredom, I was going to see about responding to him with 100% kindness. In other words, I was not going to insult him at all. I was not going to imply he was a fool. I was not going to hit back. I was just going to answer the questions that he asked and try to communicate that to him. Within five minutes, this conversation turns from an argument on his side to becoming genuinely curious. And last I heard from him, he was a weekly churchgoer. This was many years ago. I don't know where he is today. I, I um, By God's grace, he's, he's still an Orthodox Christian. My point is... You cannot judge whether a person will ultimately be receptive by the first things that they say to you. And you would not believe the amount of people who, in the end, would be receptive to the stuff that one has to say if only one would abide by the biblical instructions on wise teaching. So for the fool, the fool cannot teach because whether or not his mind knows the truth, out of the abundance of his heart, that truth is communicated in destructive speech. And that which by its nature is meant to build up will end up only destroying. So here's an analogy. You take a brick, take the say the brick is 
uh, uh, representative of the truth. And what you want is you want to build a great house. Well, that brick taken alone has destructive potential. You could take that brick and you could throw it through a window, it would shatter the window. But that brick taken by itself, taken alone, does not have constructive potential unless it is combined with mortar. It's that glue which you uh, uh, put one brick on top of another uh, so that they stick together. And so I think the brick represents your truth and uh, this adhesive represents love because it's only in that glue that one brick is linked together with the other so that the foundation of your house and each successive layer is able to become a foundation for what comes next. This is the only way that you don't have to keep going back to square one if a person is able to digest the true things which are being spoken because one has framed them in such a way that it does not come across as an attack on everything that they are. Solomon and Ecclesiastes, um, what's often translated meaningless, meaninglessness, should really be translated vapor, is chebong. It's the same word which uh, forms the basis for Abel's name, chebong. And as Solomon says, only God can shepherd the wind. And the point of the book is that only God determines what will ultimately come of our work during this life. And so the conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God and be obedient to his commandments and trust him that he will bring out of our work exactly what he desires to bring out of our work. And it's by speaking the truth in love, by using the tongue with wisdom, that we become in our will a participant in that great creative work that God is bringing through the history of the world. So I'll wrap up by some practical comments on Proverbs 8. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Whoever utters slander is a fool. Notice how throughout the book, a lying tongue has been one of the great enemies. And what Solomon is teaching here is that the only way that your tongue, that your lip is going to have any value is if it actually reflects what comes out of your heart. So the heart is the focal point for habituation of the will. That is, as one practices more virtue over time, one is more and more inclined to practice virtue. The relationship that that has with the emotional quality is complicated, um, but that is what habituation looks like. And so as one is habituated in grace, those gracious words which one speaks have this two-way impact. They both shape the world and they also shape your heart. So you're building these two 
two things at once. Um, so the first point here is that if one speaks, one can't be just hiding a wicked heart. And then whoever utters slander is a fool. And that's what uh, is about the content of our speech itself. So we might think of each element of the process of true, creative, good speech here uh, as being individually necessary, but they only function for the purpose God wants when they are operating together. So if one speaks truth without love, it won't do through you what God wants to do through you, through the participation of your will. And if one speaks um, with gentleness, but with no truth, it's the same, same problem. One must have a softened heart and a, uh, a mouth, a lip, which expresses that grace of heart. And the only way we know how to do this is not by excessive introspection. Who can know the human heart, after all, except God? It's by obedience of divine commandments, and it's by living out the Christian life in a community of people. So in relation to what in Orthodoxy we call a spiritual father. Um, or, you know, you're just your parish priest. This doesn't mean you have to have the this kind of very strict relation of obedience that many ascetics and monastics have, but you want to always exist in relation to others so that you're not relying on yourself to check yourself. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And so we see here that good speech has a higher tendency to be concise. And I think the reason that this is the case is because if one speaks in a good way, every word is maximally effective. Every word is another pulse of life. But if one is speaking from folly, remember what we said earlier, sin has no logos. Sin has no real existence. It is only piggybacking in a corrupt way off the good. Well, if one is trying to use words to get the job done that words are meant to do, but one is trying to express folly, one has uh, this linguistic vomiting because no matter how hard one tries, there's never going to be enough words to do what words are supposed to do. That's the abstract kind of theological interpretation of it, but practically speaking, I think we've all had this experience of, you know, maybe we're at dinner with a couple friends, maybe we're with our families, and we start talking with our mouth, but then our mouth begins to talk us. And an hour later, through this kind of altered state of consciousness, and this is really what it, what it, what it feels like, you look back and you just think, what have I just said? You have just insulted and torn down every mutual acquaintance that both of you know. 
You have just... There hasn't been one charitable word in this whole discussion. It's This is what it looks like when your tongue starts to talk you. We say in the Orthodox tradition that the body can only really be the body. It can only be for the world what God wants it to be when it is subject to the soul. And the soul can only be what it is supposed to be for the body when it is joined to the life of God through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit communicates through our created spirits life to our soul, which then communicates it to our body, and so the whole system redounds unto the glory of God. One becomes an instrument through which the love of God flows into the world, and then an instrument through which the world is thankful in love back to God. One is a living hourglass, so that the charity which makes the world flows through you and then flows back up to God through you and every human being as an instantiation of the whole human nature is in a different way a participant in this process. But as we'll talk about in the next video, what it means to become a real participant in this is to get control of the tongue. Because that is the decision point. We'll talk about this in the next video, but just to sketch out my argument, you cannot decide what thoughts pop into your head. Okay, Thoughts that pop into your head, um, most of us just simply do not have the capacity at this point to acquire sovereignty over that yet. They can bubble up from some dark place in our heart. They can be put in it, in our mind by devils. Um, they might be put in our mind from God without God yet indwelling the mind according to the principle which he places in mind. So it's kind of an external gift of grace rather than gifts of grace which uh, bubbles up in us by the spirits dwelling in our heart. It's a distinction that I'm making. So we can't decide what thoughts are going to pop into our head. Likewise, we can't really decide what we see or what we hear. Somebody says something to you, you're going to hear it whether you want to or not. If you see something horrible, you only are able to close your eyes and turn away after you've already seen it. So the mouth is this decision point, as it were. The mouth, this is the gate which decides what aspects of the world we're going to take into ourselves and then what we're going to put back into the world. So this is why eating is an image which is so closely associated with our relationship to the creation writ large. Our dominion over the world is expressed and exalted in the Eucharist because the Eucharist we take in the stuff of the world as it is joined to Jesus Christ and sanctified therein. And because we take in the incarnate word of God in the Eucharist, we then give back something of the word in speaking the truth in love by God's grace. So we can't decide 
or control what thoughts pop into our head, but we can control by the Spirit what we express, what we say. And by the same token, we can't decide, we can't control everything that we see or we hear. We can control some of it. We can't control everything we see or we hear, but we can determine what aspects we will take into ourselves and make a part of ourselves, again, by the Spirit. So that, I think, is the core idea which gives the mouth, the lips, the tongue, the significance that it has in biblical theology. You are what you eat, and you choose what aspects of the world are going to shape you through your mouth. And you eat what you are because you come to like that which one takes into oneself. Solomon in Proverbs, he describes this process whereby a person at first sheds blood for utilitarian, pragmatic purposes, but eventually one begins to take joy in the act of shedding blood itself, even if it's counterproductive. You see this in Breaking Bad. I want to make a video on Breaking Bad some sometime, but um, that's kind of like everybody makes a video on Breaking Bad, so I'll say some other uh, stuff first. But <clears throat> anyway, you see this, this dynamic in action. Um, you are what you eat and you eat what you are because the more one brings the world under the purview of one's choice in relation to it, the more one is locked into that specific relationship to the world. And that's the idea of the power of willing becoming habituated in either good or evil according to our free choices. Uh, so, as usual, we didn't get through everything that I wanted to get through today, but we did get through this slide, and there is one slide left, and we will do that uh, in another video, perhaps very soon, perhaps in a week or so. Um, but I hope you got something out of it. You know, I... I, I Whenever I make these videos, afterwards I always feel like it was more rambly than I wanted it to be. But some people have said, maybe, you know, that the great silent majority can't stand it. But some people have told me that they, they found even the rambly bits to be quite useful. Um, so that's why I haven't invested more effort in putting a forcible stop to that. Uh, so it, please do not be uh, uh, shy if you... If there's something I could do to make the videos more understandable to you, obviously, I don't want to reduce things to the lowest common denominator. I'm producing a particular kind of video for a person who uh, wants a particular sort of depth, um, but also which retains practicality. Um, but if you already enjoy this content, but you think there's something I could do better, please feel free. Um, to share, especially if you're a patron, because um, that is right now the uh, heart of my livelihood. Um, and again, so thankful to all of you um, who have become patrons and also just all of you who have been viewers in general. Um, it's been really encouraging and uh, it's, it's it for me, this has been an incredible experience of the faithfulness of God. So, one day I do have to make a video just on this. Hopefully when I'm a little more settled in on YouTube. Um, but, when I didn't get into my PhD programs, 
there's this bit in the office where Dwight says, uh, a crushing blow? Uh, yes. Will I get over it? No. But life goes on. And that's kind of how it felt. But I knew that God exists and, and was faithful. And I have been so surprised by how productive this has been. Just how many people have become viewers, have become patrons, have become subscribers. Uh, and honestly, like this is what I would... this If I had my choice, this is the way that I would spend my time and it is it is a really profound um, teaching moment from God on his great faithfulness so if I leave you with nothing else trust God uh, it's easy to say you hear trust God all the time but he is trustworthy so pray for that which you need. And you can pray specific prayers. And God will answer you. He might not always say yes, but he will answer you. And he will say yes more than I think you maybe expect him to. So we're getting off topic, but it's the end of the video. So I feel a little more free at that point. Uh, I will see you, uh, God willing, soon. I ask, as usual, for your prayers. Um, please do include me in the liturgical commemorations, the diptychs at the Divine Liturgy. If you're an Orthodox Christian, write seraphim in the diptychs. It's that little piece of paper which the priest will read at the great entrance when he brings forth the bread and the wine. And he says, remember all of us in, the, uh, in his kingdom, both now and ever to the ages of ages, amen. And that's the moment where he prays for the living and for the dead who have reposed in the hope of resurrection and life eternal. So if you would write my name, Seraphim, on this little sheet, it would be very much appreciated. Um, I really do believe that it, it, it has a shaping in influence on my life. And all of you who have prayed for me, uh, I, I mean, literally, you, you have saved my life. And every day that you pray for me, you continue to bear me up on your shoulders and so god you have accrued treasure in heaven so thank you so much